Welcome to this Reformation and Revival video. I'm here with um, William Wolf, who is currently stationed at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And we wanted to sit down together and talk a little bit about all of the Christian nationalism stuff that's going on. And uh, who knows exactly where this particular conversation is going to go, but we're, we have all sorts of things that we could chase, William. So thanks for joining me. Well, Jared, thanks for having me on. And it's uh, it's great to meet you, albeit though you are one of my fallen Baptist brothers. I won't hold it against <laughs> you. Yes, I understand. I remember I used to talk about all my fallen Baptist brothers for, you know, I would always point out all of the great Presbyterians that we love that uh, that were always born Baptist. So um, I understand. It's weird to be on this side of things, especially since you're at Southern Seminary, where I spent uh, many, many years. So um, glad to have you with me. Why don't you why don't you start by kind of telling us who you are? You've done work in government. You you've done all sorts of stuff. You spoke down at NatCon not too long ago in Florida. Um, just kind of give us a scope and sequence of who you are, what you do. Thanks. Yeah, I've got currently a I think a pretty interesting by God's grace trajectory. I worked in Washington D.C. in politics for a decade. Served in the Trump administration. And after I left the Trump administration, I did a pastoral internship and then went to seminary. So not your not your typical next steps after you know working at the State Department, the Department of Defense. But uh, this is where I think the Lord has called me so far because of the particular interest I have of trying to help uh, American evangelical Christians, uh, in sort of in broad strokes, just think better and think more biblically about faith and politics. Uh, and that burden really grew in my heart as I was working in politics. So I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2012, uh, right after I'd become a Christian. And, you know, I actually went the other way, Jared. I grew up going to a PCA church, went to a PCA college, and then became a Christian after college, was baptized as a believer, and it's stuck. I'm Baptist and have been ever since. <laughs> uh, so I moved to D.C. for the church, actually, and the job sort of followed suit. And I worked for three different members of Congress, I uh, worked at Heritage Action, which is the political arm of the Heritage Foundation. And then in 2016, when when Trump won, I was all in. I said, let's go. I mean, that was an opportunity for someone like myself to work in the administration to make a difference on behalf of the American people. And I didn't see any, I didn't see that in any way as being at odds with my Christian faith to serve my fellow countrymen like that. And so the Lord opened doors and I worked at the State Department, Department of Defense. And uh, yeah, after I finished up at that point, after having watched how things went in 2016 and again in 2020, you know, evangelicals for Biden and nonsense like that, I just was like, all right, you know, we need people, we need people to be unapologetically sort of like for the good of our country who are also Christians and aren't like sort of trying to merge like social justice at every, you know, turn with American politics. So I thought, let's go, let's go to seminary. I'd been chipping away online at a degree already. So I did pastoral internship at my church there and then came to Louisville, Kentucky in August of 21 to finish my MDiv. Finished that last year. And uh, yeah, we'll be here for a couple more months and then hope to head back to my hometown of uh, Matthews, North Carolina. Okay, so you're a Southern Seminary. I spent many, many years there. <laughs> did my master's work there, did some PhD work there. I remember that, um, those hallowed halls, that checkered floor. Um, I think Jonathan Pennington once said in a class that he wanted to rollerblade down that checkered hallway, like with Moeller's office, the, the double staircase up to mm -hmm. Moeller's office, that perfectly manicured lawn, all of that kind of stuff. I, you know, and here you are like on Twitter, just like firing off. I mean, you're just like, you're just shooting everything. I'm interested to know how many of my old Southern brethren there are like with you or on like Team Wolf let's go do this thing. And how many of them are like, you know, Hey, we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do this thing. <laughs> we shouldn't do this thing. Yeah, man. That's a good question, Jared. Thanks for asking. I mean, it's, um, it's been an interesting last couple of years for me in many ways. And, uh, you know, we can just, we can iterate and process this together as brothers. You know, I, um, I, I had all these thoughts and opinions, you know, internalized for a long time, but I was working in roles where it really wasn't, the best in any way for me to be sort of like being a public figure or like having sort of an outspoken public presence. But when I got out of the administration, I mean, that, that kind of was over and it was particularly during COVID. And it's like, I'm, I'm watching stuff happening at, during COVID and just that, that fundamental belief that if you don't stand up, 
who will? And I'm not going to wait on somebody else to stand up and speak on my behalf and speak on other people's behalfs, you know? So, um, so I got on Twitter, you know, later in 21 and started speaking to these issues that I care deeply about. And uh, it's come pretty naturally to me. But yeah, man, I don't think there are a lot of folks institutionally who are on my team, <laughs> but I think that there are many people out there organically who are. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to do is bridge the gap between the interests of the, the people, so to speak, and the, you know, to represent their interests to the institutions and in the institutions. Uh, that's one, it, it, even working in politics, that was something I cared deeply about was actually representing the will and the interests of your average American conservative over and against sort of like the Republican establishment or like the Republican rhinos or things like that. So yeah, who's on <laughs> Team Wolf? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. Um, at least a lot of people are. I don't know how many, uh, how many organizational leaders are. We'll put it that way. Okay. So the organic people you're talking about are people at the seminary associated with the seminary. You got, you get some, you got a, you got some uh, organic ground traction there. I think, you know, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I was, been, I was, I'd see the seminary more largely as an institution. Um, okay. And I think more organically across the SBC, I hear regularly from a lot of SBC pastors and SBC members messaging me, thanking me for speaking out, speaking clearly, speaking strongly. Um, yeah. Around the seminary here, brother, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to talk bad about anyone i don't I, you know i don't have personal problems you know like so uh but i, I you know you, you know what life is like in the southern baptist world man there's a, a genteel institutional way of doing things and that just isn't my style so i i don't expect to be nominated to be a, a dean anytime soon let me put it that way <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand and the sb uh we should talk about this kind of SBC, Christian nationalism, obviously I became Presbyterian, um, but I know a lot about that SBC world. And it's a fascinating time. I'm reading a book called um, God in the Atlantic. It's uh, Oxford University Press. I can't remember who wrote it, but uh, the guy has basically taken primary source data from the the 19th century um, from conservative England and conservative Europe. And it's their assessment of the of the United States of America. Hmm. And it's it's hilarious because all of the conservatives are saying, oh, these crazy Americans and all their revivalism and there's no established church and it's going to go crazy. These camp meetings that they hold are just crazy. It, it's fascinating to see how that's the conservative take of England. Um, and and yet the author is saying, but in the United States, obviously, it's fared better when it comes to general morality and religion, like it's compared to Europe and England. Um, and then you had the inauguration recently in England. So you have these fascinating dynamics there. Um, and I think uh, Pastor Doug Wilson out here recently said, like, you're not going to have the Christian nationalism that we're after in the United States of America without Baptists. Because to be a Christian in America is to be Baptist. It's just that's mm-hmm. what it, everyone, I mean, all the Presbyterians, all those PCA people that you grew up with are Baptists. That's why, that's why it was so, that's why it was so easy for you to do the Baptist thing, Williams. Because it was <laughs> like, there are, everyone's instincts are, um, are Baptistic. And then we had recently Scott Anniel's, um exchanges with Doug. And you sent me one of your tweets that you responded to Scott about civil leaders. Should they should they be swearing allegiance to Christ or should they, should they say Christ is Lord? So mm-hmm. I think all that's, all that's on the table for this interesting. What is it going to look like in the United States of America to actually have a Christian consensus that says, yes, we should acknowledge that Christ is Lord over the nation. I think there's like, there's thousands of questions within that. Why don't we tee up on one of them? Um, you've already, this is what you tweeted. This is what you tweeted and sent to me um, replying to Scott. You say, um, we do need to say we do need our civil magistrates to say that Christ is Lord, and mm-hmm. Aniel says that's not the way. That's not the Baptist way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we've got to have an internal before an external. We don't want an external before an internal. You've objected to that. Let's just take that. I think that particular issue is going to be a hot issue in the American Baptist world of how how are we supposed to be thinking about this? Should civil magistrates say Christ is Lord or no? Well, I think they not only should. I think that scripture makes it clear that they're obligated. Yeah, so they should because they're obligated to. 
they should because they must. It's, uh, you know, there's no, uh, you, you can pick a couple key passages here across the scope of the canon to consider, you know, you can look at Psalm 2, and I don't see a sort of salvific conversion prerequisite to the commands there for the kings to, you know, to stop scoffing against God and his chosen one and to submit to them. And this was interesting. And, and I hope if Scott watches this, he, he, you know, he feels like I represent him fairly here because Scott's reply to me was elucidating because he's arguing in Romans 13, 1 to 7, that the the imperatives there are not given to the magistrate, but rather they're being given to the people. And I think that's a that's a fair point. Uh, but when you when you look at what Paul says in Romans 13, 4, uh, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Uh, you know, they are God's servants, again, agents of wrath to bring punishment. I would think if I'm a magistrate reading that, I should know very clearly that that, that is sort of like an imperative to me. What am I? I am God's servant. How should I act? And so in the new covenant, so Baptists love to think covenantally, right? So Psalm 2, or you look at like Daniel 6, you know, we see, or Nineveh, in Nineveh and Jonah, you see these rulers who repent and recognize the creator God. So the ruler must ask, who do I rule under? I rule under the creator God. That's from whom I get my authority. That's to whom I'm responsible responsible for. How is he revealed? Well, you know, in the old covenant era, you would say he's revealed in creation. He's revealed in, you know, the covenant with Israel. He's revealed in, you know, the Ten Commandments, but not quite revealed in Christ. So now in the new covenant era, when a ruler asks, from whom do I derive my authority and who do I rule under? I rule under the creator God. How has he revealed himself? Well, in these last times, he has revealed himself most fully in his son, Jesus Christ. And I think I would argue that a civic, a civil ruler can reason through that equation uh, and even look at the scriptures without necessarily there having been a salvific moment of regeneration and conversion, which we would long for, we would pray for, and we would preach to them. You need to also repent and believe. Uh, you need to not only recognize you rule under Christ, you need to confess that he is Lord in your heart and repent of your sins. So Scott and I would disagree on that because I would argue that there's a there's a a weight of scripture that shows that rulers can recognize God is God and in the new covenant era that God has revealed himself most fully in his son Jesus Christ, even if they have not themselves repented and believed. I don't know if you'd have a different take on that as a Presbyterian, but that's sort of how I'm currently reasoning through it. I'm sure there's holes that could be poked in that logic, but that's just sort of a brief overview. Uh, well, no, I liked it. I uh, particularly picking up on your covenantal theme. So you, it sounds like you're saying, hey, in the Old Testament, you know, we did not have um, we didn't have the virgin born son of God. We didn't have the God man. We had the son of God, of course, um, son of God etern- is eternal. But uh, we we didn't have. The second Adam, we didn't have the uh, the virgin born son of God yet. So in the Old Testament. God's revealing himself through these various covenants, and that has implications for life on earth, for civil leaders on earth. It has, of course, you have Israel, and then you have the nations, so you have different things going on there. But mm-hmm. the covenantal point you're making is Christ. Um, Christ has not yet been born of the Virgin Mary. In the, in the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ himself has come, um, and he is he's born King of kings, Lord of lords, um, walking around on earth dies, buried, raised from the dead, ascends into heaven. And so now that we are in this new covenant era, you're saying that has uh, civil ramifications. That has, now you have to deal with the God who has um, revealed himself by actually sending his son into the world. And you must acknowledge him. You must confess him. Is that a fair summary of what you're, what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, I think that is. You know, I am um, one person I'm trying to interact with, get my mind around so I can levy a fulsome critique against is David Van Drunen. And in Politics After Christendom, Van Drunen argues something that I actually am, am pretty, I think I agree with him on this, though we definitely have disagreements, which is that fundamentally in terms of what, of how a civil magistrate is required to rule under God out, outside of Old Testament covenantal Israel. So how a nation should have ruled in the Old Testament and how a nation should rule today doesn't fundamentally change in their administration across the covenants. However, when we ask the question, who is Lord, 
Now I do think in the new covenant era, the civil magistrate of a nation can say Christ is Lord. I think Van Drunen would disagree with me on that because he wants to anchor everything back to uh, Genesis 9 and the Noahic covenant. But I'm arguing, I think, yes, I think that even today, you know, the, the king of Ethiopia can know that Christ is Lord and should know that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And I like what you're doing with it. I, I would, I think I'm anticipate that, that many Baptists are going to say, well, the old covenant, um, obviously with Israel had, um, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and those came to an end. It was an external kind of covenant. It was a mixed covenant. They're going to say something like that. But then when the new covenant comes, the new covenant is heavenly. The new covenant is spiritual. The new covenant is inner. It's a matter of it's a matter of spiritual children, not physical children, as it was with Abraham. So you get this kind of mystification almost of um, of the and I'm using mystification like M I S T a misty. It becomes a misty becomes a misty covenant, and I think that would um, mitigate against your argument. You're actually arguing almost like a C.S. Lewis. Um, no, not discarded image. Um, his book on heaven, but basically he's argued that things are getting harder, right? Uh, the great divorce thing. He basically heaven is harder. You know, th- things get more solid, not less solid. Right. The grass is like diamonds. Yes, and you're doing that kind of thing with the covenant. You're actually going from like a hey, in the old covenant there was this, but now that Christ has come in the flesh, um, that has implications for all of these nations. So basically, I like the way you're pushing, but I think that's the way some of the Baptists, maybe Scott or maybe other people kind of in the SBC are going to say, well, isn't the new covenant like we don't do all of that. We don't have a physical temple. Um, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm, I'm, I'm looking to the better country, the heavenly country. Um, and that's what the new covenant's all about. So I think they're going to like sever the covenantal force of your argument. Yeah, well, I wonder if even using covenantal language is a tad bit confusing, particularly for for Baptists and and when we're talking of matters of salvation versus the civil government, right? Because oftentimes we we do rightly talk about the new covenant being uh, an internal covenant. That's where you and I could start disagreeing on Jeremiah thirty three and thirty four, and you know other you know other applications of that for the church. You know, so I I do agree that the administration the administration of the new covenant. Is a spiritual administration. What I am saying is, though, in I'm using the phrase "new covenant era," but I mean it just like, you know, A.D. You know, the year of our Lord. You know, post Philippians mm-hmm. two. You know, nine through eleven. Christ has ascended. He is ruling and reigning now. My my point there, all the way back to your original question, which is, can a civil government say Christ is Lord? And my answer is, I think yes, they can, even if that does not mean that the person making that profession is is regenerate which scott was arguing is um i think he was saying it's a third commandment violation or even if all the people do it who aren't all christians it's a third commandment violation but to me that's just like a statement of the you know eternal facts of the universe christ is lord (laughs) that doesn't change it's not that's not changing okay so you you mentioned something there that i think is key you you addressed the annual tweet and the way you addressed Antioch was just saying, hey, I got no problem with, with magistrates saying Christ is Lord externally. Um, you're just saying Christ is Lord and that we can do the internal stuff later or, you know, whatever. It's, it's two different things. Jesus is the savior of some. He's, he's Lord of all. So that was, that was interesting to me because I wrote a piece replying to Antioch and, um, and then Doug wrote a piece replying to Antioch. And both of us said, hey, we don't want external first. We don't want external, which is very funny. I mean, the, the, the lines are fascinating here because it's like, I feel like a Baptist when I'm saying, I don't want external before internal, you know, and, but, but we're the Presbyterians. And then you're over there going, yeah, give me the external. That's fine. Just give it. <laughs> And that's like very Stephen Wolf's book. You know, he had some dualistic stuff that even Canon Press is not like traditionally, that's not kind of been our position. That's not the thing out here. Um, so I'm fascinated by all the conversations going on. 
your point was, look, just say Christ is Lord. Um, just do it. Just say it. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> just say it. Just do it. Yeah. All right. But here's my question. <laughs> if he says Christ is Lord, are we asking the magistrate to say Jesus Christ is Lord? Like the Jesus of the Bible? Yeah, well, that's kind of what I, what I was trying to like reason through there a little bit. And, and what I'm arguing in terms of, you know, give me the external is that I see what appears to be sort of an additional command and measure of um, divine acknowledgement that is put on a magistrate in the role of the magistrate that is different than you're just your everyday individual. No right? doubt. So like. Okay, so this is a piece I really want to write, which is Christian faithfulness. And, you know, you could pick your piece like Christian faithfulness for like the politician, the pastor and the and the person. Right. Or Christian faithfulness for the prince, the pastor, you know, the person like there's a there's there's faithfulness that is required of a ruler of men that is not required of just a man under rule. Right. So my argument there is that whether or not you know, whether or not the the president has, you know, repented of his sins and put his trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then intends to live a life of sanctification and commitment, you know, to the means of grace and church attendance. Whether he's done that or not, I still think he needs to rule rightly and justly. And be, and the fundamental starting point for ruling rightly and justly in the creation that God has given us in God's creation is to recognize the creator God, right? So you've got, so it's like, you're not going to rule justly if you leave God out of the equation. So he has that responsibility in his rule to recognize where his authority is derived from all authority in heaven and earth, you know, is comes from the Lord. And then in the age we live in, in the age of the risen and reigning Christ, I, I do believe that they, they have the capacity to see who the God is that they rule under, at least in, you know, in the triune form. And one of those, you know, one of the members of the Trinity being Jesus Christ. And then there's some people around here, you know, I, I don't think I'm outing him in any way. I think he talks about this on Twitter, but Michael, Michael Carlino is a, another Baptist brother of mine. He's doing a PhD and he's arguing for something like civic theism, where we just get sort of like an, an acknowledgement of the triune God. We don't have to land on you know, Jesus Christ, you know, in the flesh. And then, you know, I think I'd be okay with that. But my first question is, well, well, which God, <laughs> you know, wh- which theistic God are we talking about? And so uh, that that's kind of how I'm reasoning through it. I don't want, I don't want a fake profession. I want just rule. Okay. Yeah. I've heard about this civic theism and it's like, it's kind of like the Gentry Wellam covenant stuff, right? Applied to yes. this issue. Like they like, Mm-hmm. It's only the Noahic covenant that's operating. It's just, but you're saying that's not, you don't like what they're doing with the covenant stuff. You actually want to bring it all the way to the new covenant with Christ and say the new the new covenant with Christ is kind of the operating covenant for how civil magistrates should rule. Is that right? That would distinguish you from them? Okay. So not, not entirely when I'm, I'm sorry, I must not be being clear, but this is good. This gives me a chance to try to clarify. Yeah. I do. I do think that fundamentally the responsibilities, like I think that, um, I think it's really a canonical, like it, I'm not sure I really want to peg what, and this is what I'm trying to work out in my THM is I'm not sure I want to peg a, a civil ruler outside of old Testament Israel, whether an old covenant or the new covenant to be operating under a specific covenant. But if I had to choose one, I would probably choose creation and Noahic as elucidated by what we find in the new Testament, right? Like we get new commands we get new you know so i would say canonical and that's why i was saying like i don't actually think the responsibilities of a ruler of man fundamentally changes old covenant to new covenant but his ability to know who it is that he rules under has been further clarified because you have greater revelation that's ex- that's right that's what i'm arguing i'm saying i think it would be a mistake to say that a civil ruler must stick his head in the sand of the Noahic covenant and never see that Christ has come and risen. <laughs> I just got excited about that because I love the fact that Christ has come and risen. But you know, like I, I don't want to, I don't want to pigeonhole myself to that in, in this day and age. So, okay, so they the the civic theism thing that's forming 
is the Noahic covenant is kind of the governing covenant. And you're saying, um, you're not so much saying new covenant, you're just saying really no, um, no covenant at all. You're just thinking of the fact that there's a triune God and you're a, Romans 13 is straightforward. You're a servant of Yahweh and you have to obey Yahweh. And since we live in the year of our Lord, 2023, we have a lot of revelation about who Yahweh is and son of God has come. And therefore you must, you must call him Lord. So let me, that's, that's accurate. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Canonical. So, we could say it's canonical. Canonical. I like that. Yeah. That's great. I think it's better than the civic theism stuff. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that you've, you've not just like located it all back in the Noahic covenant, but, um, but the issue is this whole external internal thing is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you want just rule, but you say, but the but the only thing the guy has to do is an external, even before an internal. Like you got a clear, you got a, you're basically buying into Aniel's idea of external, internal, and it's like, give me the external, the internal can come later. Give me a formal and external acknowledgement of of the Lord. Now, if a civil authority does that, he is taught. You, you are requiring him to acknowledge the Jesus of the Bible, the Son of God and the Son of Man as Lord. If he does that, do we get to baptize him? If he repents and believes, do we get to baptize him? Well, no, if he just if he just <laughs> does this thing, if he does this thing that you're talking about, like with Antioch, like, okay, it's just an external whatever but he's saying the christ is lord if that if he, if a yeah. guy if the magistrate does that do we get to baptize no no i don't i don't think so and and again if i haven't been clear um i don't so i don't think i don't think of it so much in terms of chronological like ordering and that that's where i think i would disagree with annual a little bit is i'm i'm trying to and this i'm trying to see what what a ruler is responsible to god for you know, in, 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 as they assume that particular office of right. exercising derivative authority over fellow image bearers. And so whenever I, I, I it would be amazing, Jared, if that everybody who ever assumed the office of authority over men had repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. And then on top of that, they were going to be good, just rulers, <laughs> you know, because I bet we, I mean, we could certainly have converted individuals with a lack of common sense and wisdom and they make bad laws. Right. Um, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm less concerned about that chronological sequencing of when does the magistrate recognize he rules under God versus when does the magistrate repent of his sins and believe I'm saying, as soon as that man becomes a ruler of man, he has an additional authority upon him to, to recognize he rules under God. And when he says, you know, say, say, Jared, say you're the pastor and you get the first meeting with the new president of the United States in 2025, whoever that is, and you charge him, sir, Mr. President, I just want to be very clear that you rule under the authority of the creator God. And he says, who is that creator God? And then you tell him who God is and how God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And then I think whether he repents and believes then or later, that is a, a burden of responsibility that rests on him. Right. Okay. So, yeah, that's very interesting in that you said you're not as concerned with the chronology because I'm not either. And I think that's the key. I think the way Aniel has framed it, like my reply to him was saying, that's just not framed. It's not the way, at least, that the Pado-Baptists think. Because he said Pado-Baptists would want formal acknowledgement from their children before internal. And Mm -hmm. I just said, I said, that's not true. That's not how, that's not how Pado-Baptists are thinking. So I think he took a Baptist paradigm that said, we want internal before external. And he said, you're pedo, so you must want the opposite. You must you must want external before internal. And I'm just going, no, 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 that's not the thing. Like We just think it's, it's a covenantal thing. God has said something about the child, and thus mm-hmm. baptism is warranted. And it's a similar thing with the magistrate, which I think is exactly what you're saying. God's just made him his servant. And if he's made you, if, if God has made you his servant, you have to, you have to respond to that. You have to Call him Lord. You have, you have to confess right. him to be Lord. So my my question then, let me rephrase. This is kind of getting at the same thing by asking a different question. To be a to be a civil authority in the United States of America, should you have to be baptized in the triune name? Mm. 
No, I don't think so. Like, I, I don't know the way that. No, tell me more. <laughs> tell me more about this. <laughs> Wait, to, you're, you're saying like you're essentially asking, like, can only Christians can only Christians hold public office in the United that's, States? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm asking. <laughs> no, well, no, I don't I don't I don't think that that's the case at all currently in the construction of the United States. And Jared, this is really interesting, you know, because so many so much of this conversation about the theory of a Christian nation is a theoretical conversation that should be had. And people, bro, people have such a hard time thinking in theory versus practice. People have such a hard time keeping categories separately, uh-huh. separate. So I look, so I would say this, if 10 Christians wash up on an island and they want to create a new government and they want in that new government that they create to have a Christian standard for holding office, like nobody can hold office unless you've been baptized in the triune name, I would not say that they're in sin or they're doing something wrong. I think they're totally free to do that, which is part of what, you know, Stephen Wolf argues these theoretical, you know, conceptions of a Christian nation with a Christian prince and things like that in his book. And people lose their minds because it's, it's theory, you know, but so currently in the United States though, no, I'm not going to say that, you know, nobody except those who are Christians can hold office. Look, I mean, even some of our Baptist you know, uh, brethren in the past, Isaac Backus wanted to see a Christian test for office. John Locke didn't think atheists were fit to hold public office. So like that's, you know, there are very reasonable streams and thoughtful individuals who have, who have grounded these arguments before, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not on here today rolling out my policy plan for a Christian test for office. Um, so can you kiss the sun and not be a Christian? Well, I said, I mean, this, this is the whole conversation we're having, which I think you actually finally touched on it very well in biblical language. I wanted to come back to this, which is that servants need to know who their master is. Like, let's put it that way. A servant needs to know who his master is. If you don't know who your master is, you're going to be a bad servant. And, and you have to serve him. That's right. Can't just like know who he is. That's right. And so like, that's where it's like, so one of the things I have an issue with is, um, Christians, Baptists, Baptists in particular, try to shove so many categories through like ecclesiology. And there are some things that you don't, you shouldn't be viewing them fundamentally through like the prism of ecclesiology because it's going to refract the light in confusing ways. And so, you know, that's where it's like the, the conversation about external versus internal and the Baptist question, like, you know, yeah, Baptists don't want to, we're not going to externally recognize somebody's been a Christian through baptism unless they're professing they've had that internal experience where Presbyterians will administer the external symbol of baptism before that individual has made that profession. But I want to leave that aside and that's not the lens I want to look at this through, right? So that's where we kind of get confused. Where it's like so in in Romans 13 4 when Paul says that they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer, for the one in authority is God's servant. For rulers hold no terror to those who do right. And uh, then if you look at, you know, if you look at First Peter 2, this is interesting. Some people like to argue that God never says rulers should praise the good as if the only thing they should ever do is punish evil. But in First Peter 2, it actually says the ruler should commend the good, right? So, so we're seeing that the rulers are servants. They need to know who their master is and what their master wants. And knowing what is good and right versus what is evil and wrong I think, again, is something you can do even if you haven't been baptized in the triune name to a certain extent. I mean, this is, this is, we have to factor in some natural, you know, some natural law, some common grace into this argument. You know, like even if you're not a Christian, doesn't mean that every, every decision you're going to make as a ruler must be an evil decision. Of course not. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably shouldn't ask this one. I probably should stay on the track of, of, of um of being a servant because i think let me i'll ask this one a second but let me come let me stay at the romans 13. um he's god's minister right and when you get baptized you take god's name upon your head you take god's name that, that much agree you baptize sure. in, the, in the triune name, you're, the taking triune his, name. Yeah. you're taking his name and he's your master he's your mm-hmm. master you're his servant Mm-hmm. So, if he's going to be a faithful servant, wouldn't he have to have his master, the master's name on him? Well, so then I think you're asking a question that gets to the nature of two kingdoms, 
right? Like which, which kingdom are we talking about, right? Like if we're, if we're talking about the administration of baptism to an individual who's joining the church and his, and his, and his publicly declaring the fact that spiritually they're aligning themselves with Christ's kingdom, his eternal kingdom, which isn't fully seen yet and is man, is being manifest over the world and is growing like a mustard seed. You know, that's, you know, baptism is an external sign of a spiritual reality. Right. And okay, so, okay. so, and however, so the oath, but that's the difference, Jared, between baptism as an external sign of a spiritual reality and something like an oath of office for a civil ruler who is assuming, a, you know, something in the temporal realm, in the physical realm, and isn't really fundamentally, it's not a spiritual question. You know, their administration of justice is, is a physical, temporal, real thing. That, that again, I, I'm arguing, I think scripture says that they can, that God has commanded them to administer this, you know, against evil and for good. And that's, that again, is not against spiritual evil per se, but physical manifestations of evil. Okay, so uh, civil civil authorities are servants of of Christ. Mm-hmm. That, that much, yes. That's premise A. Yeah, yeah. Premise is this B. all just so much like one argument to try to make me a Presbyterian? Yeah, right I'm now? just no, 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 <laughs> no. Not that. I'm, I'm, just, just, I'm just asking different questions yeah. from different angles. Yeah. Um, servants have to obey their masters. That's premise number two. That's legit. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what? words of christ does the civil magistrate servant get to disregard in which capacity jared in their capacity as as a human being ultimately accountable to god for the life they've lived you know in toto or in their particular role for whatever period of time it is as a civil magistrate let's take the office and in his office in his office, which words does he get to disregard? Which words of his master, Jesus Christ, does he get uh-huh. to disregard? Well, the answer would be none, of course. However, the scope, and this is really important, right? Like the scope of his office is limited. And so he should he should regard and, and recognize like the civil magistrate, once he steps into that office, his, his job is not to um, exercise the keys, right? Like he shouldn't be, you know, he, you know, we're not saying he gets to disregard Matthew 18, but he doesn't get to exercise authority over the Matthew 18 process. Right. So like, uh-huh. you know, there's no, there's no words that he gets to disregard, but the difference is he needs to be very clear about what the limited scope of his assignment is. You know, what are the parameters right. of how he should, of how he should rule and exercise justice over his realm. Right. So you did Matthew 18 thing, which is a different sphere of, with with mm-hmm. certain authority given to other people right. who are sitting as different as different representatives, mm-hmm. the ecclesiastical yeah. authority, and I'm I'm not saying that um, the civil authority should should exercise uh, ecclesiastical authority, but I'm asking right. e- even in his civil office, what straightforward mm-hmm. biblical commands from Jesus, who is his master, can he disregard? And you're saying none of them, and I'm I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying and be baptized is one of them. <laughs> okay, well, so that's that's a great point. Is the question of like the uh, the question of faithfulness, and that's again where it's like I don't disagree at all with uh, you know Scott's admonition that we all strive for Christian faithfulness, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. but faithfulness looks different. So let me put it this way: like, if there was, if we had, uh, let's let's leave the United States for a second, and let's go somewhere where there's a king, and that king actually like exercises a degree of authority. It's not just a ceremonial monarch. And that king assumes office, not a, not having been baptized in the triune name, not having repented of sins and believed. Hanging over that that man's head is the obligation to repent and believe. But that obligation to repent and believe, I am not seeing as essential to him exercising his his just rule if if he can still rule rightly according to what he sees in scripture and creation you're going to disagree with uh, you're me on slicing that, right? this you're slicing this roast beef in a way that makes me makes it hard to eat it william you got so what you, are you so give me a, give me a <laughs> counterpoint are you are you well, essentially arguing that only baptized christians can rule justly um only baptized christians can rule justly uh, no i'm not arguing that 
Um, Great. I'm not. I'm not arguing that. Well, I mean, you know, maybe I am arguing that. We'll think. Not think about it. But, um, I'm trying very. Maybe, maybe that's to not argue that. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. Like, you know, you get the old famous quote: "I'd rather have a competent Turk than an incompetent Christian." But it's like yeah, everybody says that, but that's not the way that the world works. So, you know, if you are in rebellion against the living God, I mean, what's what's David say at the end of Second Samuel twenty three? No, the one who rules in the fear of God, mm-hmm. he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. That sounds like justice and peace to me. Where do you get that? David says you get it from the man who rules in the fear of God. And I don't think any of us are arguing that you're going to get the fear of God while you're rebelling against him. Like, no, I, I, I'm. I'm categorically opposed to this God. I refuse to take his name upon my head through baptism. I resist, I resist his clear directives. But yeah, he's Lord. He's he he's Lord, but I don't do what he says. I, I don't even do the basics. I mean, I'm not even, you know, we're not doing like a big soul searching about whether he's fulfilling every tiny prescription. This is like, this is the basic thing. Like, Christ is Lord, but I am not a Christian. Christ mm-hmm. is Lord. I bow to him, but, you know, not really. I don't really bow mm-hmm. to him. I'm not obeying the clear things that he's told me to do. And say, well, you know, we got a problem there. And so slicing it like, oh, what you can, you really can give this fully natural law, you give this fully physical, this fully temporal. I can, I can fulfill all of that. Um, without any of the stuff, you know, without any, I don't think that does, that isn't going to work. Well, now you sound like Scott, I think. <laughs> this is why no. it's just so confusing. This is not, but no, wait, let, is, let me respond to that though, because uh-huh. I, I don't, I don't think, I mean, and I'll be very honest. I've said this on um, a podcast with Joel Webin is that, you know, I spent, I spent 10 years with my face in politics and now I've spent sort of two years with my face in theology. And so I'm still, and, and particularly on the question of like natural law and the, the extent and the utility of the natural law is something I am still wrestling with. Although let me make a, a, a joke here. There is, um, there have been voices, young evangelical, even Baptist voices who have been saying, we really need to recover, you know, a Protestant understanding and use of the natural law. And then Stephen Wolf shows up with a book that's essentially here's here's a Protestant use and understanding of the natural law applied to nations. And then one of the critiques was like, you don't have enough scripture in here. <laughs> well, which one do you want, guys? Do you want a natural law theory or do you mm-hmm. want like do you want exegesis? You know, and those don't have to be in in competition with each other. But I, I'm not saying only you said only there, like only natural law, only creation order. If you want to use that term, Carl F.H. Henry, like the term creation order. I, I like that term creation order. It is what it is. Um, but I'm saying that that a an, I do believe an unregenerate civil ruler can still know he's God's servant, whether or not he has fully grasped what it means to repent and believe and understand Christ's work on the cross. He can still grasp he's God's servant. And he could even search the scriptures, you know, <laughs> you know, he could look at how, what it looks like to rule and he could aim towards that. I mean, I think we see examples of that all through history, right? Like, uh, unless you're going to argue that every good ruler in history was a regenerate Christian, I think we could provide examples of men who have ruled well, who unfortunately today are probably burning in hell. And so I want both. But I'm not saying, you know, unless you're going to argue that the the fundamental precondition for ruling justly is personal conversion, uh, then I think essentially we'd have to be in the same position. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm going to ask you the question I said I, that I that I would wait to ask, and this we can cl- okay. close with this one. Um, Isaiah 49:23. Um, pull it King, up. Kings will be your nursing your nursing fathers. Mm-hmm. Do you think that civil authorities are to be nursing fathers to the church? Sure. 
Okay. Well, I mean, what does that mean? What do you think that means? Uh, I mean, I know what I think it means and how I answered then. But well, so go ahead. Tell me. Tell me. No, tell me what well, you mean. <laughs> well, look, I mean, again, authority, you know, one of the things, Jared, I think that makes this conversation so difficult in the evangelical um, sphere is we just have such a bad, like, understanding of authority, like what authority is for, like a biblical use of authority. And so can a, can a king or can can the government of the United States be, let's put it this way, can the government of the United States be a help instead of a hindrance to the church? A- absolutely. That doesn't mean that the government of the United States needs to be determining doctrine or, you know, passing judgment on the credibility or lack thereof of somebody's profession of faith. But can the government of the United States, you know, you know, help a church get a permit easier than not? You know, can, a, can the government of the United States exempt churches from, you know, ridiculous COVID regulations when they're exempting casinos and strip clubs and liquor stores instead of putting them under the same regulations as like concerts, you know, but then but then lifting the regulations for Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah. I mean, if that if that's what this means here, if this means that the civil authority in the temporal sphere can do things that are conducive to the flourishing and the growth of the church and or the people of God, you know, then I would say yes. If you mean something else by it, then maybe I would say no. Or if Isaiah um, meant something else by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's interesting. So, but, so your claim, you're basically saying, I agree that they are nurse, nursing fathers, but I, you still maintain that they- Nursing mothers, be, come on, man. They wouldn't this need to be- This is not your be, endorsement of transgenderism. They wouldn't need to be- uh, they wouldn't. They wouldn't need to be baptized in order to be so. King shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with the face of the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. I mean, in context here, even who is is he talking about? I haven't looked at this this passage very closely. I appreciate you bringing it up; it's helpful. But is he is this in context of kings and like civil authorities? recognizing the future messiah when he's talking about bow down with their face towards the earth and lick up the dust of your feet that sort of sounds like homage being paid to a to a messianic figure yeah yeah so i think you have christ is is the head of his church and we are we are christ's body and here you have uh civil rulers that are um predisposed to the health of the church of christ amen let's get some of that (laughs) and i would so what i'm coming at and i know some of this is the pedo credo thing behind it because when i'm asking when i keep asking for baptism you know you're translating that as uh you know born again converted and that's not oh, yes <laughs> right? you're like of course i am i'm at the southern baptist theological yeah. seminary uh but but that's not exactly what i'm saying right i'm saying that um you know it, how how is the how is the okay the westminster confession of faith says that the visible church is the kingdom of god and so you know what are you going to do um it, the idea that you're going to have a king who's going to be this kind of foster or nurse uh to mm-hmm. the church while he himself is outside of the kingdom of god like oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna bless it but i'm gonna be myself outside of it that's an idea that um i think is going to have problems even practically and politically uh, as as the plan unfolds strategically i don't know when you know this is a public podcast so it's being revealed here but when you would roll this out as far as the policy measure is one thing but ideally just um coming to coming to terms with hey are we aiming at uh we want to baptize the nations can you have a can you have a head that is not baptized and say that yeah we've really accomplished it we're we're a christian nation but our leader is a pagan well, J- Jared, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I actually now I feel like I'm arguing with a guy named Jonathan, Jonathan Lehman, who doesn't want to use the <laughs> word <laughs> the word Christian for anything other than see. Th- this is where I do depart from my Baptist brethren because I, I just think it's sort of common sense. Like we use mm-hmm. the phrase Christian and have for centuries to to mean things other than you know regeneration, 
like the the you know the on, only the act of spiritual regeneration. We talk about Christian schools, we talk about Christian colleges, we talk about Christian countries historically or currently, you know, Zambia, etc. Like, you know, I do, and so I disagree that you can't, uh, uh, you know, you can't call a nation a Christian nation if the laws of that nation are such. Say what's written down, what's what's enshrined is such that it orders the nation towards God and towards the principles and the morals and the virtues of Christianity, even if say, you know, every other leader that leads that nation isn't again, necessarily baptized, you know, maybe. And, and again, Jared, I do just think I would, I would, uh, this would probably be my, my biggest strenuous pushback on you, which is this great conversation would be that history is just replete with, with men who have ruled well. Uh, over over their people that I'm not confident are in heaven, you know. So I just I think that that's a reality that exists. So yes, and well, and I agree with you. So I don't disagree with you on that point. And my claim is not Lehman style that you need every single person in the entity to be a born again Christian okay. in order to call it a Christian. But I the point is about headship and or about representation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one thing if you don't have all of your citizens in a state that are Christian, but I think it's another thing if you don't have your well, your very representatives mm-hmm. are outside of the kingdom of God, that kind of thing. So we, we should we should keep talking about this sometime. We should circle back and uh, this has just been one arm of the uh, of the whole piece, which is yeah. uh, fascinating and. Really enjoy watching you and then Annie all enjoy listening to what Andrew Walker's saying. And I enjoy listening to what Jonathan Lehman's saying. It's like the whole Baptist world seems to be kind mm-hmm. of figuring out exactly how we're going to play this out. I think um, it's been fun to watch. It's been fun to have this conversation. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I mean, I, I think that Baptist, I think you're right kind of where, where you started, which is if we're going to have a Christian nation, if we're going to have, a, you know, uh, Amir Christendom 2.0, you know, particularly in the United States in practical reality, like Baptists need to get on board with it. And I think Baptists, little b Baptists are, I think that a lot of like, you know, institutional men get like caught up on some of this stuff when, you know, we could just say, you know, Christian nation, gooder than trans and kids. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That That is, um, that would be a perfect motto for the for the first candidate that we run. Better than trans and kids. <laughs> Amen. Thanks for joining me, William. It's been great to have you. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that the American family is in bad shape. But we're left with the question, why? Why is the American family dissolving? I believe that there is a covenant solution to the dissolving American family. So I sat down with Pastor Doug Wilson, Pastor Toby Sumter, and several other of my friends to talk about covenant marriage, covenant parenting, even the covenant and the cosmos. It's called The Case for the Christian Family, and it's available March 31st. I hope you enjoy it.